1: And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with historians Mark Harrison and Stephen Wheatcroft about the final volume of the history of Soviet industrialization, entitled "The Soviet Economy and the Approach of War, 1937 to 1939." Stephen, Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I was wondering if you could uh, start us off by uh, telling our listeners uh, something about yourselves.
2: Well, I'm um, uh, Mark Harrison. I'm a professor of uh, economics at the University of Warwick, uh, working on Russia, on communism. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time on the economics of the two world wars and the Cold War. And uh, I currently work on uh, aspects of Soviet security and surveillance. Uh, but uh, the industrialization of the Soviet economy has been probably my most long-term interest.
0: Stephen, Hi. I'm uh, Steve Weycroft, uh Currently, professor of uh, Soviet history at the University of uh, Deakin University in, in Melbourne. Uh, a long time professor of, uh, at the University of 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 Melbourne. Um, I'm uh, an economic historian. A uh, long time with uh, area studies interest in the Soviet Union. Particular interest, I suppose, in demographic history and in agricultural history. Uh, famines, uh, also repression. Um, I was a, a postgraduate student uh, under Bob Davis, who was the main author of the series, uh, The Industrialization of the Soviet Russia, the seven volumes. I was a postgraduate stu- uh, student under him in the 1970s, and I suppose, uh, consequently, that this, this series and so continuing Bob's work has been a, a major element in my, my life since my postgraduate student days.
1: Uh, what you've just uh, mentioned, Stephen, is something of the lineage of this series. I was wondering if the two of you could explain a bit about the, the series, the industrialization of Soviet Russia, and how it was the two of you came to be involved in uh, in uh, contributing to this volume.
0: Uh, well, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, uh, Bob Davies, uh, Birmingham University, uh, was the originator of the series, and I think it grew fairly organically, out of his work with E.H. Carr on the 14th volume history of of the Soviet Revolution, 1917 to 29. Bob collaborated with E.H. Carr, particularly for the economic uh, sections, the foundations of the planned economy. foundations of the planned economy really began in 1926, going on to 1929. uh, And so Bob then... Took on the story after the fourteen volumes of the EH AH Car into a mere seven volumes uh, of Soviet industrialization, uh, nineteen twenty nine uh, through to
2: nineteen thirty. Um, it, it, it could also be added that the series really dates from the Cold War, when the Soviet Union was a global superpower. And uh, for many people around the world, it was seen as an alternative model of, of economic development. E.H. Carr thought of the Soviet, Soviet industrialization as one of the most important events of the 20th century. And that's why he wanted to begin to write its history. But he uh, uh, became old and uh, felt that he was running out of uh, uh, documentary sources when he got to the end of the 1920s. But that's when Bob Davis took it up. Uh, of course, times have changed since the Cold War, and the Soviet Union is no longer exists and and uh, uh, but its significance is still very much debated so essentially, the series of which um we've just completed the last volume uh describes the formative years of uh, the Soviet superpower uh, from the economic standpoint. Um, just to complete the answer to your questions, Steve, uh, from his earliest days, has worked alongside Bob Davis, who was the originator of the series of the present series. And uh, although I was not Bob's student, I, I was a student at Oxford, and Bob was at Birmingham. Uh, but I got to know Bob a little bit when I was already a graduate student, and in my whole career has, uh, um, in which I spent at the University of Warwick, is close to Birmingham and uh, Birmingham has been one of the uh, the centres of study of these things and I've always been there as a visitor, uh, visited, attended seminars and uh, occasionally worked with Bob and it's been a privilege and an honour for me to join the team uh, uh, for this last volume.
0: (laughs) Perhaps I could also add that EHCore had always said that he didn't think he could ever go beyond 1929 because all of the literature did actually sort of dry up the published literature. One of the big things, of course, that uh, the project ran through was the opening up of the archives. And we do sort of pride ourselves very much on having a very archive-focused uh, 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 approach. This this would not have been possible before uh, the sort of uh, 1990s. So we're very fortunate that the archives did open up as we were working through this period.
1: One of the things I found very fascinating about the book was that... He- uh, the title of the, of the seven volumes is, is is The Industrialization of Soviet Russia, and uh, both of you are, are coming at this from the standpoint of economics and economic history. And yet, one of the things you do in this volume, and I, I think this is one of the things that makes it such a, a fascinating volume to read, is how you integrate it with the broader context. This is not just economics or economic history uh, Uh, alone or standing in a vacuum, but it's one in which you talk about it as this, uh, if you will, the spine uh, that, that defines so much of what's happening in the Soviet Union. Uh, in the 1930s, in particular the period you're talking about here, which is from 1937 until 1939, that's so much of the Soviet Union. So much of, 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 in many respects, uh, if I can draw upon the the conclusion, the you know the rest of the 20th century is, is shaped and defined by what's ha- happening economically during this period.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you pick that up because I think so much of modern history of the Soviet Union is written without a. Op- good realisation of the economic developments behind it. So I think it is extremely important, uh, and I have a great a complaint uh, about much of modern writing of Soviet history, that it doesn't adequately take into account this very important uh, eco- economic dimension, which we certainly uh, put in full centre here.
2: I think that's absolutely correct, and I know that our Uh, third and fourth co-authors, Alia Kleobniuk, who's uh, also been involved in this volume, and Bob himself would completely agree with that. Uh, I think it's inherent in the subject matter in a way that the the leading principle of the Soviet economy was the politicization of economics. And so uh, we we are economists and economic historians and our focus is on the economy, but, but we can't study that without also studying politics and policy. And, and so you know, it's a it's a compliment if you tell us that we've succeeded, but that was certainly our aim.
1: I wonder if you could perhaps, uh, if the two of you could elaborate a bit upon what the Soviet economy was like in the mid 1930s when your volume uh, begins. What, what was happening within the Soviet economy? What what was the role of the state in it, and uh, in what direction was the Soviet economy developing?
2: Hmm. Um this is an economy that's uh, very much dominated by the state uh, I mean our volume starts in 1937 and uh it, it, it's uh, also an economy that has recently recovered from a very grave crisis so back in 1932 uh, after the first wave of uh, industrialization and in the first five-year plan, uh, the economy is in crisis, there's extensive shortages, there's a famine in which millions of people are literally starving to death. Um, five years later, in 1937, there's been a recovery from that. Uh, so living standards have returned, not probably not quite to the level of the 1920s, but at least uh, um, uh, the incidence of extreme hunger has... Uh, Uh, greatly diminished and uh, for for production there's been a huge increase so so the economy of 1937 is is, uh, probably uh, getting on for twice the size of 1932 and uh, uh, in fact if you look at the economic growth of the Soviet economy between the outbreak of World War One and the outbreak of World War Two. Nearly all of the economic growth happens in those five years. So in 1937, it's kind of it, it almost looks like a high point. Um, uh, uh, and uh, I think one of the interesting questions is whether the, the pace of recovery from the low point of 32 up to 1937 is sustainable. Uh, possibly not, possibly the economy was due for a slowdown anyway, but then, um, as uh, Steve and I will probably mention in a minute, uh, all sorts of complicating factors come into play in 1937 uh, to cause a very abrupt slowdown.
0: Yeah I'd like to add that although of course its uh, you know industrialization has been travelling at a tremendous rate it is still a predominantly agricultural economy and the agriculture is absolutely critical and the one slight modification I, I I'd just like to make is that although there's been these three extremely good years after the very bad 1932-33 harvest failure and famine there was in 36 a drought um which did actually uh, Produce the first steadying effect, uh, And I think in fact many, many of the, the consequences of the surprises were going to develop, partly because there had been a partial interruption and a steadying of the extraordinary growth that had taken place: 33, 34, 35. Then, certainly with agriculture, from 36, there was a steadying uh, uh, and actually very severe uh, fears that maybe they could be getting back into uh, the famine again. So this is, I think, part of the uncertainty with which 36, well, the second half of 36, the first half of 37, the harvest year of the drought of 36 uh, was characterized. And it is, I think, extremely important that this uh, very sensitive period will go on until... The next thirty-seven harvest comes in, uh, and that will then dramatically change the situation. But up until June, July, nineteen thirty-seven, there was still this very edginess brought about by this interruption uh, of the recovery that I had earlier set in
1: there's actually one aspect of this that i think we pr- I, we probably need to uh explain a bit further before we go on a- and that is uh, an aspect of the economy which was practically unique in the Soviet Union at this time uh you, you just, in your book you you uh you divide the economy into various sectors. You describe what's happening in industry, you describe what's happening in agriculture, you describe what's happening with defense. But there's this aspect of the economy of uh, gulag. And the gulags are are, are well-known. Many authors have written about them. And they're thought about in terms of uh, as prison camps, uh, where where, where, we're dissidents and, were, and so forth were detained. But what uh, you describe in the book is that they played this very important economic role that uh, really it, it needs to be considered when you're looking at this, the development of the Soviet economy.
2: The, um, uh, um, one of the most important aspects of the Gulag is that it was a, provided a ready labor force for government projects. And it, in some ways, uh, I think that the economy as a whole is being uh, driven uh, by uh, a couple of key decisions that were made frequently in, in uh, the apex of the system, in the Politburo, which is the, the, uh, the budget for capital construction and the defence budget. And These two budgets were often related because defence spending involved capital projects to build uh, defence plans, to build railways, uh, to provide materials to the economy and uh, uh, when these decisions were made uh, the gulag was often a convenient uh, labor force to be thrown into the action in order to fill gaps to make up shortages and and so as the 1930s wear on the gulag becomes more and more important in defense construction uh, in building the railways and the defense plants the power systems that they thought would be important in time of war um, but I, I have a sense that I probably interrupted Steve then so I'm going to stop now
0: no, I was just saying there was also of course a very important regional aspect to this uh, and that the, 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 the gulag was of particular importance in the particularly underdeveloped uh, distant regions uh, poorly populated where there were lots of mineral resources wanted to, 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 to get at so in terms of the development of Siberia and the far north, uh, you would not be able to get a a free labor force there. The the gulags were were used uh, in projects, particularly in those areas.
1: It's fascinating to think about it as, as a form of penal colonization for forced colonization, bringing that into the functioning of the economy as a whole.
2: Well, the, the, the Bolsheviks definitely have this view, I think, that and, yeah, there are other people before them in Russian history and there are, other, there are other people after the Bolsheviks now who have the same view, which is you have all this territory and uh, for the, in the interest of national power, the territory needs to be occupied and exploited. Uh, it's uh, It leaves the nation vulnerable if you have a vast territory to the east of the Urals in which very few people live. Um it leaves it open to you know, the greedy eyes of neighbouring states who might want to take it for themselves, and so um, uh, military colonisation and penal colonisation is an enduring theme in Russian history.
0: East the Urals, of course, down in the south, particularly Kazakhstan, is also going to be important. Now, when you open
1: your volume in 1937. You have this. Uh, you have this uh, event that is unfolding in the Soviet government and in Soviet life, and it's this is the I'm referring to the purges, and, and as you describe it in the book, the purges loom uh, really large uh, in this volume and and, and over the uh, much of the period that you're uh, writing about. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about. What would, how, how the purges affected the economy, how they affected the operations of the economy, and in what ways were uh, other factors still as or more determinative in, determinative in terms of economic uh, the impact?
0: Well, I mean, this, I think this is one of the aspects which before uh, the archives opened up, uh, we would be completely at a loss because we really didn't know very much at all about the purges uh, apart from what was publicized. And what was publicized was really sort of high politics, uh, uh, the very leading um, figures. Uh, and they gave the impression that it was only the, uh, the party leadership who were the main, main victims. We we now talk about mass operations affecting large groups of people, and also a nomenclatura purge going through the whole uh, ranks of uh, uh, party uh, and state agencies, well, and military agencies, and not necessarily as closely tied to the narrow party political purges that, that have gone on before. Uh, they are related to them, but to some extent, this great nomenclatura purge and the mass operations will begin really from about the middle of 1937 and go go onwards, and we'll have a a, a, a a totally different trajectory from the earlier well-known you know trials of the oppositions. And I think uh, it's here, particularly where we need to you know look at the new view from the archival source and just see how the party or the state agencies were so totally uh, you know disoriented. Leaderships. Uh, of them uh, being being removed, more than purely the way the purges were affecting the former party leadership.
2: I think it, it's possible to make a sort of aggregate judgment, and this is what we try to make in, 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 the, in the book, that the effects of the purges taken as a whole on the economy was generally negative, uh, uh, particularly in industry and construction and transport. It's clear that the stripping out of leading personnel uh, led production to SAG. Um, uh, agriculture is a more complicated story, which perhaps we'll come to in a minute. Um, but uh, I, I think what we can't yet say exactly is what was the differential impact of the two streams that Steve has referred to. That is, there is a nomenclatura purge that affects tens of thousands of leading personnel, and there are the mass purges that uh, were an, a greater by an order of magnitude. Hundreds of thousands of people, up to a million, million and a half people, were arrested in the space of uh, just over a year. And uh, it's clear that, taken as a whole, this this was enormously disruptive. But uh, and what we probably can't say right now is which was which of these two streams was the, the decisive impact. Um,
1: One of the things I thought was interesting was how they fed upon each other was you would have these arrests and you would have this uh, deprivation of, of experience in terms of management at various levels and this would lead to disruption effect disruptions which would then be reflected in lower economic performance well you can't blame the purges (laughs) and 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 so therefore it must be saboteurs so therefore it serves to justify yet further arrests which which exacerbate some of these uh these these economic uh uh drags upon uh upon development
0: well although i don't think it's quite as simple as that because uh in the first five year plan you had this revisions uh, you had this promotion into the uh, new um, position uh of many people who were uh, were enthusiasts but not particularly well trained what you had happening uh in certainly the first five year plan in, uh, from the late 20s right through the early 30s is a, a very large amount of training and new cadres coming in often in fact which were much better trained than people who had been put into leadership positions in the first five-year plan. So there are some areas in in which you know you can actually see a new generation. The Kozegins, some some extent, wasn't although Mark and I maybe have different views as to. The, uh, how beneficial it was, but a newly educated uh, people who, in many cases, were were better than some of the uh, some, some of the older uh, groups that had been promoted during the really tumultuous time of the first five year plan, when the l- lack of uh, of, uh, of of uh, sort of experience and uh, uh, specialists had been even greater.
2: No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I don't sense at all.
0: There's another aspect of the purges that
1: you also write about, which is how. And this is it was it was it was, I, it was an aspect that I hadn't really considered before, but how it, in some respects, uh, you know, hobbled certain th- uh, you know things such as railway transportation, but also it had the effect of introducing large bodies of workers into the gulag sector and so what you're seeing is not so much necessarily a deprivation of a million people necessarily but you're seeing a shift from one you know one role in the economy to now they're playing a role in a different aspect of the economy
2: yes it's a it's a blunt instrument for redistribution of the workforce i mean a blunt instrument in all the senses including the worst senses of that term and and so um, hundreds of thousands of people who were previously engaged in you know, normal sort of uh, peaceful occupations, suddenly found themselves uh, led out into the wilderness uh, uh, to live uh, in very poorly uh, uh, com- uh, provided conditions to uh, cut down trees to uh, uh, set, build railway lines and so on um, or to mine for gold and um, Uh, it it doesn't sound like an efficient process. It's a a process that was enormously wasteful of the talents and skills that they had before and also of their lives uh, because uh, there was very high mortality in these camps in 1937. Um, uh, But yes, that redistribution also happened.
0: Yes, I mean, I I think it was uh, an extraordinary... um uh, under-evaluation of the value of people, um, one, one of the things that uh, seems to me to be happening is that uh, part of, as, as a result of the uh, of the, um, well, mobilization for war and the increasing uh, movement into military production is things like, for instance, bulldozers and uh, excavator, production of which had begun to rise is now stopped uh, with production in that capacity moving over to tank production. Uh, and effectively being substituted by labor uh human power uh, it 's almost as though you know the the value of the mechanized uh, you know, equipment which could be put to war seems to be far more valuable than that of, uh, of the individual labor force
1: you you 're referencing the military buildup is sort of the other uh, shadow, if you will, that's being cast upon the economy during this period. I, I, I want to get to that in, in just a little bit, but I, I was wondering if, if the the two of you could explain a bit uh, more broadly what was happening in the Soviet economy during this period during 1937, 1938, 1939. It, it, it was the economy growing, uh, were there elements of it that were stagnant, and what were some of the broader factors that were uh, shaping and defining this, this development? Was it a matter of, 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 was it primarily being driven by planning, were there environmental factors? H- how, was, how was the Soviet of economy developing, broadly speaking?
0: Well, in fact, it's the agricultural and environmental factors, I say. Uh, it began with this drought affecting the harvest of thirty-six, which will cast a shadow until the next harvest, which will only come in after July thirty-seven. So you do begin with this relatively you know, bad uh, factor uh, uh, hanging over agriculture. And it wasn't as far as I can see, just that. It was the fact that i i had a very dangerous run down of um, reserves uh, that in fact the 36, 36 37 harvest situation would have been much more serious uh, could easily have been a little bit more like the 32 33 famine uh, uh, had not the government really run down its reserves of food at a dangerous dangerous level if that had been followed by a second harvest failure then there would have been a uh, disaster as it turned out the 37 harvest was quite extraordinary and that was largely because of the weather uh, you can't uh, uh, give the, the Bolsheviks or organization much credit for this the weather is really extraordinarily uh, important um, uh, and the harvest was ex- you know well almost, almost unbelievably high when we Uh, We have great doubts about many of the harvest figures. I was highly doubtful about the figures that were being reported, but but we can see food consumption, we can see through budget studies. Suddenly, uh, after the 37 harvest, uh, there is large amounts of grain uh, available, far more, in fact, than they had expected. So this gives all sorts of oddities to the agricultural uh, science. So agriculture really is going in. Uh, you know, starts and and staggering. Uh, Industry, uh, Mark will talk to that. I think there was a more sort of continuous uh, uh, development and slowdown. But agriculture, you've got this extraordinary jerk right at the beginning of this period.
2: Industrial production and transport uh, uh, stagger under the blow of the repressions in 1937. And they recover somewhat. 1938 and 39, But in terms of the real action in the economy um, after 1937, it is in defense. And to to a very considerable extent, this is a continuation of a process that goes back to the late 1920s. Uh, Soviet rearmament began then, uh, but from a very, very small base. So uh, the Bolsheviks did not inherit a very large defense industry from uh, from the Imperial Russia uh, and began to build it up uh, from the, the, the 1920s but because it was small it took a long time to acquire scale uh, by 1937-38 defense industry is really motoring and uh, as, uh, although the, the, one of the things that we note at the end of the book is that by 1939 the Soviet Union was one of the great weapons producers in the world and um, This also imposes burdens on the economy, because the defense industry is a tremendous user of fuels, of high-grade metals, non-ferrous metals, uh, um, and skilled workers. So a huge amount of design and uh, uh, engineering skill goes into the build-up of the defense industry. And this is really the, the main structural change that is happening in the last years before the outbreak of World War II. Uh, so it, it's, it, uh,
1: if, if I may clarify, to what degree was that plan going back to the, uh, the, the, the early planning stages for that era, and to what degree was it a response to the events that were taking place?
2: I see it as a quite uh, far-sighted and forward-looking process. If you go back to the 1920s, uh, what uh, the military are telling Stalin is that the character of war is changing, uh, that the next war will be fought with uh, huge numbers of tanks and planes, and that Russia is not ready. And uh, there's a tradition of, of analysis of future war that begins to develop. Then, so this is not just a reactive process. They're not you know, in the 1920s. They're not reacting to the threat from Japan, which hasn't yet materialized. Uh, you know, they start to worry about Japan in 1931. They're not remotely worrying about Hitler uh, it doesn't <laughs> until 1933. So this process starts. With, you know, and, and the, the main fear of of the 1920s is the threat of war from hostile neighbors such as Poland or uh, the, the, the Baltic states, backed by Britain or France or by America. Um, and uh, 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 so it's uh, so at this point that they start to engage in a long range process of rearmament. And indeed, part of this process is noting that the, the Soviet population in the 1920s is war weary. They had uh, three years of World War One and, and then uh, three or four more years of civil war, so seven years of continuous fighting, uh, most people in the 1920s want peace. And uh, uh, the Bolsheviks understand that this is a problem that has to be managed, uh, that the values of uh, patriotism and military service and enthusiasm for these things had to be re-inculcated. And so uh, although, as I said, The size of the Soviet military sector in the 1920s is quite small. There is uh, quite a deliberate process of building it up, which begins then, works its way through the first, second, and third five-year plans, and uh, culminates in this extraordinary situation. By the time you get to 1939, that the Soviet Union is producing as many armaments as Germany, and that Germany in 1939 is working on Hitler's plan uh, eventually to conquer the world. So the Soviet Union doesn't have a plan of that nature, but nonetheless it's up there with Germany in terms of the numbers of uh, aircraft and uh, uh, armoured vehicles and uh, naval vessels and so on that are being built. Yes,
0: I can just add, of course, without the building of the metallurgical base uh, in Magnetic in uh, east of the Ural, in the first five-year plan, Uh, there would be uh, no chance of building uh, your tanks and your aircraft in the Second World War once the Ukraine has been occupied. So it's that first five-year plan, uh, development and building up of this new metallurgy site, which then allowed for the developments to take place uh, later on. So this this isn't just a, a response to things happening in the, the late 1930s. This is, as Mark said, a very long-sighted uh, uh, development. Uh,
2: Seems so, so quite correct. And, and uh, I mean, one of the things that the Bolsheviks understood, and, and Stalin and those around him, was that if you want to rearm, you have to build up industry in a broad, generalised way. You can't just have a narrow industrial base to support it. And Indeed, the first five-year plans saw a very big shift in industrial activity towards the east. All uh, through the 30s, they were balancing the, 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 the problem, which was that they knew that the east was safe from attack from Western Europe, uh, but they also knew that if you want to produce, you know, d- develop increases in production quickly, you do it where production already exists. So they had this tension between moving to the east or just building up industry where it was. In the mid-30s, the movement of the East slowed down a bit. Uh, When war broke out in in, in 1941, they were caught with a a lot of their important defense plants in the West, uh, which they then had to evacuate uh, out out to the Urals and to Siberia. So the, the, the location of industry was a big strategic problem for them right through the 1930s. And you know they ended up with a compromise which sort of worked in some ways in the way that steve suggested in other ways they were still vulnerable when war broke out but the build-up of uh, engineering industry metallurgy railways and so on always had this defense angle
1: i want to shift our focus now to a, a topic that wasn't really, uh, that was really unique to this period, and that was the issue of the census. And, mm-hmm. and this came as, as, uh, it, it was a bit of a, of a novelty to me to read about what happened to the census because I found there's so many fascinating factors at work that, uh, run through, uh, uh, your volume here in terms of the, uh, competing tensions of on the one hand the the demands of the state, the concerns about the purge. And and yet at the same time you describe also these uh efforts by the uh by the by the demographers and the statisticians who are participating in this effort to try to do a professional job and how oftentimes these two competing uh tensions, you know Often, you know, in some cases, ran into each other. What was going on there, and and, and what does that really tell us about the broader approach of the uh, of of the regime towards the realities of the economy?
0: Well, I think um, in many planning systems, there uh, automatically almost develops a tendency to uh, for the planners to want to. Uh, well, be very ambitious uh, to plan for high figures and then to exaggerate the growth that is taking place. Uh, I think you'll find that in, in Britain, uh, plenty of wartime aircraft. But it's, it's, it's almost an automatic feature that, that develops into it. Um, and so there had been massive distortion of uh, uh, all levels of, of production, um, uh, particularly think agricultural and, and uh, population um, largely in the first five-year plan, which then continued through into the second five-year plan, um, and this was, you know, part of the way that the planning operation operated. Uh, Stalin then, at one point, started uh, using. Uh, Population growth figures is an indicator of welfare. Life is getting better, comrades. Uh, life is getting better. The population is growing at, one of his favorite uh, statements was at sort of three million a year. A whole f- new Finland uh, is being added to the <laughs> Soviet Union every, every year. Um, and so once Stalin has started saying that, it, it became very uh, a, a different difficult and in fact many statisticians planners and economists got into a lot of trouble by uh, trying to uh, bring the regime down down to reality con- concerning that uh, and of course uh, a tragedy then 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 developed i i, I think that in fact uh, we can in historical terms we can see two attempts at a, a sobering up of statistics uh, in order to make the plans work working better one happened in 1932 Uh, Up until uh, the statistical organization was merged into the state planning organization at the end of 1929. And then this led to what Yasny has correctly described as a sort of planning bacchanalia, where where figures just go out completely crazy. Then the beginning of 1932, Stalin did a a very strange thing. He actually brought back the previous director of statistical services who had sacked for quarreling with him in 1928 and this was a, a very independent uh, oppositionist figure, uh, uh, Osinski, um, and he put him in charge of a revised you know, statistical uh, agency, although they didn't use this, they called it National Accounting Agency, but it was basically to bring the statistics into a more realistic line. And I think if the famine hadn't developed in '33, they would have possibly been able to get into – uh Correcting the distortions that had already happened uh, within the population figures, but with the famine uh, then taking place and with a uh decision to try to deny the famine was taking place, then the distortions that had already appeared in the system were were continued and so when a census was effect uh, carried out um the first one in nineteen thirty thirty seven uh, they came up with a population figure which was 16 million, less than the figure that Goss' plan had been planning uh, for. The first five-year plan saw the expectation of population in 178 million, and the census showed 162. Uh, there was a major discussion of this, and in the middle of the purges and the repression that was taking place, the decision was made... Uh, To declare the census as wrecked, to execute uh, the director of the statistical agency, uh, many statisticians, and to call for a new census. Now, a second census was then carried out in 1939. uh, there's a lot, I think, of misunderstandings about this, because in the West it's often described as though this was a false census as well, and that Stalin <laughs> dictated the figures to this. But when the second census was carried out, they were second five-year plan was expecting a population figure of 183 million. And in fact, when the census did take place, it showed 167 million. Uh, it was still 16 million short. But the remarkable thing was that um, the statisticians yeah well, despite uh, the the large scale killing of them uh, still came up with relatively realistic uh um, evaluations and in fact, one of the heroic i, I think of earlier uh, directors of Tsse Popov actually wrote to uh, Molotov and Stalin on the eve of the census. Telling them, I'm an old statistician who was appreciated by Lenin, and I tell you that in fact, when the census is carried out, the results will be the same, more or less, as previously, and that the problem isn't with the way the census is being carried out, but with Gosplan's expectations. This was accepted, uh, and this was a major change between thirty-seven and, and, and thirty-nine. There were still minor distortions uh, concerning how they handled the. Uh, they call it the specs contingent that's the number of 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 uh, of the military and the number in the labor camps but in fact, all censuses that were carried out uh, in Europe on the eve of the Second World War did not reveal the true location of military forces. This was part of a kind of juggling that went on. With Russia, the juggling was actually greater, of course, because they, uh, they included the large number, over a million in the labor camps uh, in this juggling, and they also juggled them to try to fill in some of the gaps caused by the famine uh, earlier. This has led many people... Uh, including Robert Conquest to talk about the 39 census as though it was a fake census. But uh, we are arguing that it wasn't at all a fake census. It largely did correct the distortions that had previously been there in terms of the population, although there was and continued to be a degree of juggling as regards the space contingent.
1: Well, you described how, how there's, this, there's this very political edge to it because when they're coming up with these numbers, it's not just a matter they're going up against, against the, the, what, what the, the planners had done, but you know Stalin's made these very public statements. And if they publish figures that contradict that, well, then, in effect, they're, they're challenging this image that Stalin has gone to great lengths to try to construct about himself.
0: Yeah, and they actually do do, do that. Um, and so, in fact, as I say, the uh, Stalin's figures uh, were compatible, I mean, the plans were made to be compatible with Stalin's figures, so they, 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 they were expecting 183 million, and in fact, they only got 167. Uh, as a result, the, the figure was published, uh, but uh, it was published on two sheets on the side of uh, uh, Pravda and Izvestia, uh, rather than the 28 volumes that the uh, earlier Census had come in, and there was, and you know, there was. um, uh, I I think a a very uh, difficult, uh, uh, embarrassing silence about what uh, the scale of the census actually meant. Stalin, uh, Stalin, didn't make any more references about uh, population growing the size of Finland uh, any longer, and uh, uh, people just kept quiet about that. It, it was a so, sobering up. Um, uh, and to some extent, I think it was important that there was so um, be, because it, it did increase a degree of realism into the system. Um, the problem was that in terms of agriculture, they were still dealing with uh, production figures that were exaggerated by about 30%, and they, they continued to do so uh, right through. Uh, this was not corrected at this time, Uh and it was only after Stalin's death that they began um, including harvest losses in their uh, calculation of, of grain production. There's a, a technical difference between biological yield, uh, optimal yield at the time of harvesting, if it's harvested at the most optimal period, with absolutely no harvest uh Or um, transportation losses, and then the way that it's normally uh, measured, including about 20 or 30 percent of harvest loss. Now, this continued within the system, um, it's not arbitrary because that actually does serve a purpose because the peasants are made responsible for the harvest losses. So, by, if like, dealing them with the full biological yield. At the time of harvest, any of the lofts that take place are slated to the peasants. So this is a way of basically putting an incentive on the peasants to to work harder. I an mean, impossible incentive, but it's it is a way of sort of screwing the peasants uh, more, which is yeah. productive in terms of the way the system uh, was was working. But totally false, um, uh, exaggerated population figures weren't going to help at all during the war effort. Um, so elements of distortion continued. Uh, some of them were were removed, and the political embarrassment of uh, of uh, uh, correcting uh, wrong views of certain politicians were uh, were glossed over, which happens in some other societies as well
1: you mentioned okay. the the war effort stephen and that gets to the what is increasingly living large as you uh get uh, further into the book, which is the onset of war, and of course, uh, the, the thought is you know, the 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 Russia German war. Uh, but you are uh, talking in the book as well about how in uh, at the start of the book, the Soviet Union already has a uh, very large uh, military uh, assistance program to the Republican government in uh, Spain. They're helping out the uh, various sides in in China, and and how this is part of what contributing to the state is there any shift that takes place as war looms in europe generally i mean do they simply continue with the programs and the war happens or is there a growing acceleration of their uh, of of the prep of the defense preparations as events in europe deteriorate more generally
2: okay so Uh, I think something to understand here is that uh, in the 20th century it was industrial rearmament took time it was hard and costly to switch it on and off Um, uh, when war broke out and you look at the economies of uh, Britain uh, the Soviet Union, America—you do see very, very sharp increases in war production, and, but these are bought with just a, a colossal effort, a absolutely colossal effort. Um, it it really—and even then, you know, it would take a year or two to ramp up war production to the war, you know, to, to the, anywhere near their wartime peaks. So, very, very sort of short-term adjustments in war production to the evolution of events uh, are very hard to pick out, to identify uh, when you look at the general pattern of the growth of Soviet defense industry, it's pretty continuous um, and it, but it's pretty continuous partly because it's the nature of the process that it just relies a lot on momentum. You know, to build up to suddenly increase aircraft production, you have to have more aluminium, more workers, more factories. Uh, you can't just snap your fingers and create them overnight. So uh, what this creates is a process w- which uh, more or less inevitably is very hard to tie to immediate events. Uh. You know, uh, one of the, the um, it's quite hard to measure war production in the aggregate. Part of the problem is that the changes of quality and quantity are very interrelated. Um, uh, so it's very hard you know, to say that you know in even in 1938 that. Uh, War production was an exact percentage of war production in 1937 uh, because by 1938 the entire complement of aircraft may be different from that of 1937. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, one of the things that we do is we look at things like uh, the development of the number of um, uh, defence research establishments uh and essentially they they sort of double every few years for starting from nineteen seventeen up to nineteen uh, uh thirty nine but what you do see is the interval over which they double gets gradually shorter, so it takes seven or eight years for the first doubling five or six years for the next doubling three or four years for doubling after that, and so on so um i you know having spent years of trying to understand the Process and the data. Um, I, I, I've sort of given up on the game of trying to say, well, you know, this increase in war production is attributable to that decision or that uh, that external event. Um, it's best just to think of this uh, 20th century war production as a, a very sort of long-range inertial process. There is acceleration. Um, it's, but, but it's very hard to attribute to any particular decisions or events. Yes. And I, you know, and, and just, sorry, may I just add to that? That's important from a political economy perspective, which is that when there is a sudden crisis of external relations, Stalin can't just magic up another million troops or another thousand aircraft. And what he did often seemed to do instead is to think, okay, we have an external crisis which makes us weaker. When we're weaker, what's the most dangerous thing to me? That is the wakening of the internal enemy. Uh, So side by side with this rearmament process, Stalin is continually receiving reports from the towns from the countryside, what is the state of public opinion? When uh, there's some disturbing external event, uh, the NKVD, the secret police at the time, brings back to him reports of the public mood. And the public mood is often, oh, are the J- Japanese going to evade? Will there be a war? If there's a war, they're going to give out guns. I'll have a gun. Who will I shoot? And uh, you know, Stalin's an old revolutionary. He lived through the crisis of 1917 when the workers and the soldiers had guns and had to decide who they were going to shoot. And he, he's he's very frightened of what external disturbance can do to internal security. And this is one of the things that uh, uh, more clearly drives repression than uh, changes in defense spending or defense production. So that was a complicated thought. I don't know if I made <laughs> sense of it
0: Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that in, in terms of agriculture, it's actually very strange because you could think with war coming, uh, what you ought to do is you know, get agriculture ready uh, for it. What had happened in in, in war was that uh, more people were eating potatoes. The uh, The private plot production would become more important. But curiously, it's exactly at this time that the government policy moves in the opposite direction. There is a tightening up on control over private plots. And the amount of land that the peasants could, Kolkhoz uh, peasants could farm uh, for themselves, uh, specifically at the time when this, you know, would begin to be, you'd think, uh, order be becoming more more important. As it happens during the war, of course, they have to let go on this, and there will be an enormous expansion of the the private sector. But in the years just before the war takes place. The economic policy is actually moving in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. and and that indicates to me that certainly as regards Gosagin, you know, that Stalin isn't looking abroad, saying how should I change policy as a result of this. These uh, is certainly wanting to continue with a traditional policy and more concerned, I think, as Mark was saying, with the sort of political aspects of this uh, rather than how this will work out economically
2: i uh, i think that's right and you and you can see that for example in in, in the purging of the military nineteen thirty seven thirty eight the purging of the military specialists the uh, the uh uh the, the weapons specialists uh, but by nineteen thirty eight a lot of them are uh being put to work in the gulag in 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 uh, uh sp- specialist research institutions that are behind barbed wire and You know, you wonder how productive that all was for the the economy or for uh, military security. And I I think, you know, the the answer is that for Stalin at certain points, uh, internal security became the most important thing. Uh, It's a dangerous world out there. We may be attacked at any time. How can I secure my rear? And again, you know, you go back to the revolutionary and civil war years. Stalin was one of the people sent uh, out into the provinces to secure the rear, Uh, on the the fronts of the civil war and uh, one of the things that that, um, uh, he was continually aware of and continually spoke of was the need to have a solid rear in the event of an international conflict and uh, controlling the rear, controlling uh, the forces that might be hostile to the regime in the rear uh, the enemy that could stab you in the back uh, uh, was at certain points more important to him than being the obvious things that would you know, promote external security
1: now what the two of you described is is very much a, a economy that's a product of this very uh, distinct figure Joseph Stalin and of these uh, uh, of developments that surround this extraordinary series of events dating back to 1917 1914 and so forth and yet as you conclude that uh, and, and here I'm, I'm reading directly from uh, your final chapter the economic system that Stalin built in the 1930s persisted with remarkable continuity to the end of the Soviet Union how was it able to endure for as long as it did absent these uh, factors of, of of transformation that uh, created it in the first place
2: well uh, I think part of the answer is that um uh, this is a partial answer. There are two parts of the answer. One is that it, it, it kind of worked. Uh, I mean, the, the, by the outbreak of World War II, um, the Soviet economy did have a, 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 a big army, a big defense industry was able to fight and eventually to win that war despite you know horrendous losses, despite the deep invasion. Uh, But, uh, uh, and then the other thing is that, you know, probably just to uh, bear in mind those words precisely, the economic system endured, the the political system became considerably moderated after Stalin's death, death, And in fact, had begun to moderate itself before he died, probably. Um, And the, the people around Stalin understood that his system of rule was in many ways enormously wasteful. If you think of uh, you know, what to do about uh, the potential opposition at home, Stalin's recipe was uh, all, all too often: uh, if you suspect someone of disloyalty, you shoot them. You know, he, 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 at certain times he seems to have had, and an, on, on at least one occasion, articulated a sort of five percent rule: if there's a five percent chance that somebody's a spy, you need to get rid of them. Um, and, and this is one of the things that lay behind the huge losses of uh, the, the great terror and um the wasteful character of the gulag in terms of its use of uh, human raw material and so the, the the people who took power after stalin you know, wanted to rule in a more humane way um they, they didn't want to shoot everybody they didn't want to arrest everybody they wanted to control society they wanted to uh, run the soviet union as a great power the global superpower, uh, but they, they clearly wanted to do it more efficiently. <laughs> and um, uh, so this is also part of the story. I mean, we, we don't go into that in the book, um, but it, it's, um, uh, uh, you yeah, know, having said that, I'm, yeah. I'll, I'll wait with interest to see if Steve is going to agree with me, but uh, with what I've just said. But uh, uh, I, I think uh, yeah, so there are strong continuities from Stalin through. Uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev, but they're also you know, quite important changes. Khrushchev unusually had a conscience. He didn't like killing people. Uh, he wanted to rule in a different way. Uh, he, he himself was a, probably you know, he could be classed as a mass murderer, but he was uncomfortable about it. And all credit to him for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm less with it, Khrushchev. But, but I, I certainly do agree that there were enormous changes after Stalin's death, and particularly within agriculture. Uh, so, I, I mentioned that there'd been this really false position of lying about the level of, of grain production to the extent that you were automatically forcing the peasants into an impossible position. Well, that, that could not change, could, could not continue, and will change very quickly uh, after Stalin's death. So, there's biological yield distortion, lying about the level of grain production is already out by 1954. Um, and so, you're seeing a whole series of changes in which Certainly, the position of the peasant is nothing like as terrible uh, as it had been, and prices begin to increase uh, for, for for them. Uh, um, and after this, of course, the collective farm remains until uh, the end of the the, the the Soviet period, but it's changed enormously, and the the living standards of the, uh, the amount of pressure that was placed on the peasants uh, has changed enormously uh, after, after 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 the war <laughs> um but yeah i i uh, uh, politically of course there are these these enormous changes and and there were groups that were trying uh, to find uh, more uh, ways of, of 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 changing um uh it's often argued. I mean, this is getting way beyond what he's talking in the uh, in the book, but to some extent, you know, finding oil uh, and a way of propping up the economy without necessarily having to take the reform that perhaps should have been taken uh, uh, 30 years earlier, uh, may have been a bit of a sort of disaster uh, for for the Soviet Union. I don't believe that there was not necessarily a way that it could have been reformed. Uh, What we do know was that the uh, economy was not reformed, uh, and so uh, it all collapsed uh, in 1991.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what the two of you are working on next?
0: Yeah, well, uh, I'm. Uh, I'm actually having, having spent an awful lot of time working in the twenties and thirties. Well, I'm pre-revolutionary period. I, I am now uh, working on the uh, post Second World War, War, War period. I'm particularly interested in the World Food Crisis of nineteen forty-six forty-seven. Both in the Soviet Union, where our knowledge about what was going on had earlier been so short, but also in comparison with, uh, with other, other countries. So I'm, I'm looking at the world food crisis, 46, 47, uh, in its international aspects, but bearing in mind that it was most serious and we knew least about it in, this, in the Soviet Union.
2: So, for um, VoxEU, which is the website of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, uh, I'm currently working on a, an e book with my colleague Stephen Broadbury on the economics of World War One, the economics of the Great War. Uh, there'll be a chapter on Russia, I think, by uh, Andrei Markevich, who's one of my co authors uh, currently in Moscow. Uh, That's in the very short term because it's got to be done by November, the centenary of the end of the war. Uh, Beyond that, uh, a few years ago I discovered a wonderful archive, which is the archive of the Lithuania KGB. Uh, It's on paper in Vilnius, and it's on microfilm at the Hoover Institution in California. Uh, Ever since I discovered that, I've been as happy as a boy in a sandbox. Uh, And I have two little projects arising out of that. One is on informers. And the other is on uh, 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 political surveillance and uh, low-level political policing. Uh, There's such a lot of fun in that because there's so many great stories. Uh, They're horrifying stories sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes they're a bit grim, but a lot of them, you know... (laughs) (laughs) The the, the principle of the Soviet joke was you have to find something to laugh at. And uh, there's a a lot of uh, little stray amusing insights into human behavior that you can get out of this stuff. So I'm enjoying myself with it.
1: Well, this all sound like fascinating projects, although I I have to say I I totally appreciate why you uh, are, are, are concluding the destabilization of the Soviet Union. Uh, volume where it is. I, I am sorry that that you know it is ending here and not continuing into the future because it, it, it sounds like there's uh, so much more to tell, although you, you will be telling aspects of it in these other projects. Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking some time uh, out of your busy schedules to speak with us. I hope you both have a wonderful day.
2: Thank you.